Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to update you on some news that broke as we were recording. Early in the episode, we talk about reporting that Trump was planning to pardon former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. But right before we wrapped up the episode, Donald Trump tweeted that he had, in fact, issued the pardon. And with that, on to the show. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. As usual, we have an outstanding panel today. John Seifer, who is a Lincoln Project senior advisor, co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, and a former member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service. John, thanks for being on again. My pleasure. Always fun. Communication strategist, former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party and Lincoln Project co-founder, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer, thanks for making the time again. Happy to be back, Ron. Thank you. And making his return to the Lincoln Project podcast triumphantly, conservative attorney and Lincoln Project co-founder, George Conway. George, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be back. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's plans to pardon former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, the Trump legal team's failing efforts to win election cases, the announcement of Biden's senior national security team, and the latest spike in COVID-19 cases. So let's start with Michael Flynn. On Tuesday night, Axios's Jonathan Swan and Zachary Basu broke the story that Donald Trump plans to pardon his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Fox News' John Roberts confirmed that reporting later on Tuesday. And Flynn, as everyone remembers, pleaded guilty in late 2017 to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia. So there's a lot to talk about in the legal saga of Michael Flynn, but I want to focus on the potential for a pardon. So George, can you start by helping us understand the presidential pardon power and why Trump would decide to pardon Flynn now? Well, I mean, the presidential pardon power is basically a very broad power and doesn't really have any specific limitations to it, except possibly, and there's a debate about this, he wouldn't be able to grant a self-pardon because, for a couple of reasons. One is it's sort of inherently, it's inherently a historical in that uh, you can't the king never would have had to pardon himself. So it was never such a circumstance. And also the word used in the Constitution with regard to pardons and reprieves is the word grant. And you can't really, it's linguistically, it doesn't make a lot of sense mm. and wasn't consistent with 18th century usage to say that I grant myself something. Um, if granting is something that somebody does to somebody's self. But with respect to the rest of the world, uh, in effect, there are essentially no limitations on the president's pardon power. Even if, you know, it, it, you can argue that even if the president took a bribe to pardon someone, he would be prosecuted for taking the bribe, but the pardon arguably would still be valid. Um, I don't think courts are in the habit of 
space of looking into the bona fides of pardons. And so that's why Donald Trump has always liked the pardon power so much. And he is essentially taking it from its historical or um, practical or uh, procedural moorings that have developed over the past, I don't know how many years, where there's essentially a pardon office in the Department of Justice that reviews applications and pleas for pardons and then makes recommendations to the president who then accepts or rejects the very best of them. He has essentially bypassed that whole process because he loves, in his being the narcissist that he is, granting these pardons and exercising this power that nobody can restrict. So that's that's why he likes the pardon power so much. In the case of Roger Stone, he granted not a pardon, but a, a he commuted the sentence of Roger Stone. And there he had a direct personal motive because Stone, it is believed there is evidence, and I think it was confirmed by the Senate Intelligence Committee report as well as the, the Mueller report. There's a lot of reason to believe that Stone had numerous conversations about the WikiLeaks information and leak with Trump, but clammed up about it to Mueller and lied about it to Mueller. And so Trump had every reason to reward. And he first, he encouraged Stone to stay quiet. He actually did that quite publicly. And then he rewarded Stone's silence uh, with that commutation. Here, I don't know whether there really is personal exposure that Flynn could cause could cause to Trump. Maybe John knows better because I'm sure John has followed this very closely. Um, but it, you know, he, he certainly does view it as part, view the Flynn prosecution as part of this overall persecution of himself that began, you know, with the counterintelligence investigation of 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 the of Russia interference with the U.S. election in 2016 and also implicated the Trump campaign. And he has always viewed that as sort of a personal persecution of him rather than a national security issue. And so Flynn has managed to curry favor with the president by saying, look, they persecuted me too. So you're, you're, you're putting, you're, you're, you're doing bad to the bad guys who did bad to me and to you by helping me out. And so I don't have any doubt that it's, I, you know, I have no doubt that he's going to pardon Flynn, which is absurd because Flynn has pled guilty not once, but twice. John, I want to go to you in, in just a second. But George, before we do, can you just explain for our listeners on the, you know, as a technicality, what is the difference between a pardon and commuting a sentence? And would there have to have been a conviction of a crime in order for a pardon to occur? Or can it be preemptive? A pardon can be preemptive. There does not need to be a conviction. You could be, you could pardon somebody while they have been charged and you can pardon somebody after they have been convicted and you can pardon somebody even after they have committed their sentence. And actually, the presidents have committed, uh, have pardoned people who have died. Uh, I don't, you know, there's no practical legal effect. It's more symbolic than anything in that circumstance. The only issue that I've heard of, and there's a lawyer who, who, who keeps pressing this point on me, um, and from DMs on Twitter is that there is a question that some people have about whether or not a, a president can grant a unspecific blanket pardon mm. like the one that like pre-charges, for example. Well, well, yeah, like the one that Gerald Ford gave in a proclamation in 1974 to Richard Nixon, which basically an unconditional, unrestricted <laughs> pardon for any and all crimes committed by Richard M. Nixon between January 20th, 1969 and August 
1974 right. his term in office. Right. So, and some people took the position then and take the position now that you can't pardon people that way. You have to pardon them for specific categories of offenses over specific times. It's a major question, though, right? It's never been resolved. It's never been taken up by yeah, the court. So yeah, I know. It's, right. Basically, and we don't know. And we certainly are in a place where we have a president who's willing to push all of these boundaries. Yeah. And, 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 and But it doesn't matter here with respect to the Flynn right. pardon because he was investigated and charged and then he pled guilty to some very specific offenses and he, you know, specifically the, the lying, but he also, there were some Farrah charges involved. So you, it wouldn't be very hard to make a specific list of offenses that would basically cover any possible exposure right. that Flynn had. We could land ourselves in a position where the court is going to have to decide whether or not a self-pardon is constitutional. Like we, we might I, get I w- It would not surprise me in the least because you, we know Donald Trump. We know Donald Trump is narcissistic. He views the powers of the office as being there for him to exercise for himself. He makes no distinction between himself, what's good for himself, and what's good for the country. And if he ever did, he wouldn't care about what's good for the country, um, CEG coronavirus. So he, it would not surprise me at all if on January 19th, he issued a self-pardon with a long justification about the witch hunt and so on and so forth. Um, it would not surprise me in the least. But the only way that would ever be tested would be if some, if the federal government, the United States Department of Justice, ultimately charged him with a crime, and then Trump would then have to invoke his self-pardon as a basis for dismissing the indictment. And that's really the only way the question would ever be tested. But if he self-pardoned himself, that would not preclude um, any state prosecution. He can only pardon people and give reprieves for offenses against the United States of America. George, to finish what you just said politically, even though if, if he tried to pardon himself, traditionally, when presidents leave office, a lot of the accusations and the you know investigations and things of like that sort of disappear about themselves or other people in their administration. I think that politically, Donald Trump has put himself in such a terrible position that if he were to try to issue himself a pardon when he leaves office and there's a new administration and a new AG in place, I think he would find exactly the opposite Oh, I, that, could that, no, I, I right. could not agree more, Jennifer. It would be like pouring jet fuel on the fire. Any chance that people would just say, oh, we've had enough of Donald Trump, let it go, um, would go out the door. And I don't think people really feel that way. And, and, and I also think that even maybe, maybe, again, I'm being hopeful that maybe even to some some people who might be on the fence about him or, or you know, the marginal voters who uh, out of the 73 million who voted for him, some might think that that's a sign of guilt. Of course, a good chunk of the 73 million are going to say, ah, good for him. Uh, you know, he was, he was persecuted. He should have been granted eight more years because they took away his first term or something, whatever it is they say. Okay, so I want to go back to Michael Flynn. John, we know that Flynn discussed U.S. sanctions on Russia with former Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak during the 2016 presidential transition and then lied to Vice President Mike Pence and FBI agents about that conversation. So what are the national security risks that stem from those conversations and from potentially pardoning Flynn? What risks does setting that precedent create? I think the judicial risk for Trump that that George alluded to is that it's unlikely that Flynn did this all on his own. It's, It's actually likely that 
Trump ordered Flynn to go talk to the Russians and tell them not to wor- worry about these things. If you recall, this is right after the Obama administration threw out 10 or 15 Russian intelligence officers out of the United States based mm-hmm. on their actions in the mm-hmm. 26 Russian actions in the 2016 election. So I think if there's, you know, if there's anything that's sort of judicial related to this, it's Trump trying to protect himself from that information coming out. I, you know, I don't worry so much about the judicial part of this. I, I think, you know, Flynn is likely to get pardoned, but he's also, you know, shamed himself and embarrassed himself so much. He's probably going to go down history as the worst intelligence professional or leader in history. Of course, there's some some big candidates there to include Grinnell and Radcliffe in that in that group. But he was fired from the DIA, mm-hmm. he was fired from NSC, and now he's he's all caught up in the QAnon nonsense. And so, you know, it there's there's a couple of things that he came in to power related to. One was Russia. He had taken money from the Russian government, RT, to go travel to Moscow, sat next to Vladimir Putin at an RT event, do you remember, in Moscow, and did not report this through proper channels to the Defense Intelligence Agency where he, where he had just left and was working. And he was also a lobbyist for Turkey in their efforts to go after Gulen. So you mm. remember there was a coup attempt in Turkey, and it was tied to a, a Turkish leader who actually lives in Pennsylvania. And Flynn had signed up to work for the Turkish government to try to get that person out of the United States and sent back to Turkey, you know, to essentially get a U.S. person (laughs) sent out of the country and arrested in another country. And he was also working with Russian elements on a um, nuclear facility in Egypt. So he he was clearly chasing after money. He was clearly willing to work with anybody. He He had been fired from DIA. So he was, you know, he was the wrong person to choose for that job. But then... You know, he, he he went to talk to the Russians. He lied to the vice president and probably on behalf of the president. Remember, President Obama warned, specifically warned Trump when they met in the Oval Office, I think right after the election, specifically right. warned about Flynn because of all the intelligence information that had come up about him. So, Jennifer, there was a lot of concern about what Trump would attempt to do between the election and Biden's inauguration. A lot of speculation. And I think we're starting to see that process play out now. So how should the American people be thinking about what we usually call a lame duck period, which is which is now we, we seem to be seeing signs of the, you know, the, the, the some of the most frightening things that we thought we wouldn't see. We hoped we would right. see. Um, you know, he's taken actions uh, regarding DOD, you know, this Michael Flynn thing, the, uh, you know, there have been several things already. And the, the thing, unfortunately, to remember about Donald Trump is that um, his actions get worse as they go on. So as shocking as you might find what he's doing now or as dangerous or as inappropriate as what he's doing now, I suspect that each week from now until January 20th, there's going to be something else and then something else and then something else. Mm-hmm. And to George's point could very well culminate on January 19th with an attempt at a self-pardon. Um, you know, I, you, you got to just try to think about who else is out there that he would pardon and for what purposes. Um, you should assume that there will be either pardons or presidential actions of some sort that have a long-term financial benefit to the president in these final weeks. You know, um, you and I have talked about this before, uh, Ron, about, uh, you know, the path of the Republican Party and the RNC Mm -hmm. and the financial investment that the Trump family has made in the assets 
of the Republican Party and the kind of, if not criminal, certainly corrupt behavior um, that can be taking place, uh, you know, in that avenue. Um, although that is a much less concern to me than things like Michael Flynn and Afghanistan and the Department of Defense and a lot of others. So my primary concern is just Donald Trump's pattern of starting with the small stuff and getting worse from there. And so if this is the small stuff to him, you know, what, what does lie ahead? So let's talk about the legal battles, specifically, you know, regarding the election. Trump's legal team has continued to struggle in their attempts to challenge the election in court. As of Tuesday night, they were 36 and 1, I believe, with eight open cases that haven't been ruled upon. And on Sunday, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie even called the Trump legal team's efforts a national embarrassment. Chris Christie, everybody, called Trump's legal team's a, a national embarrassment. But Ron, so, Chris Christie, who then immediately followed that up in the, you know, sometime in the last day or two, I got a fundraising text on behalf of the president under Chris Christie's name. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, yeah. There's no heroics there. So, George, why don't you set the table for us and talk about their legal strategy or lack thereof of the Trump legal team in these cases because it seems to be a joke. Well, it is a joke. By latest count, one and 36, one win and 36 losses. The one win had to do with whether it was something very minor about whether whether voters had six or nine days to correct um, mistakes they have made in submitting their absentee ballots. Like in Pennsylvania, there's that secrecy sleeve and people were confused by that. And, and some counties allowed that to be corrected and others did not. So anyway, they've, they've, they've come up with nothing. I mean, the problem, the fundamental problem for Trump has always been since basically election night, as the votes kept coming in, the margins were too big to fight. I mean, for example, in a, in a typical recount, um, I think over the last 20, 25 years, I saw a statistic to the effect that the typical statewide recount for a statewide race changes the result by only about, on average, 294 votes or something like that. Mm -hmm. So say 300, 400 votes, give or take. The 2000 recount in Florida which involved about six or seven million votes, only changed the results by about a thousand votes. And he lost in all of these states by much more than several hundred or a thousand. You know, Michigan was 150,000. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's just none of these, the closest I think the states, any of these states were, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, was something over nine or, or something like nine or 10,000, the ones that yeah. could possibly matter and make a difference. Georgia. And yeah. right. And, and then, of course, there's the fact that the, there's a 74 electoral vote margin between Biden and Trump. He added, he had to not only go beyond, get, you know, make up these tens of thousands of votes. He, in, in, in one state, but he had to do it in multiple states. He'd had to yeah. he'd have to turn around at the very least Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, the very states that made the difference in 2016. Um, uh, uh, Some combination that would get him 37 electoral votes and switch the margin by 74 votes going both ways. And he just can't do that. And so they've thrown up these claims publicly, though, that they were, you know, they were defrauded. And, you know, they point, they try to justify that by saying, oh, look, we were, we were winning in the middle of the night, which was, of course, before some of these states got to 
the absentee ballots, the, the states that basically said, oh, counties and municipalities can't count the absentee ballots until you know, the end of election day or election day or whatever it was, meaning that there was absolutely always going to be the case that the day of vote would come in first. And so that was fictitious. And then they all were just making random accusations like this whole insane theory that was trotted out by Rudy Giuliani and um, uh, Sidney Powell <laughs> about really... Hugo, Hugo Chavez setting up. I, I can't even explain it, right? They set up a Venezuelan <laughs> company that, that's, that, that somehow morphed into this dominion and then the, the company that, that's, that, that, that are used, used to count machine count votes and that's that's you know the, the socialists have gotten uh, have right. caused biden to win the election that way well hugo chavez died in 2013 and nobody knows what they're talking about and the funny thing about it is is they're making all these accusations of fraud i mean i saw a clip of rudy giuliani just from a couple of hours ago at his at the fake hearing that the pennsylvania republican state legislators are holding in windham at the windham in gettysburg and he said i know crooks i know crooks <laughs> I know crooks better than anyone. And, you know, I mean, we know, Rudy, right. You know, and, and, and they're making all these noises about fraud. But but they, every time they're asked about this by a judge and every time you look at any of the pleadings in any of these cases that they file, there's no accusation of fraud. Yeah. And they've got nothing. And to turn to overturn an election, any race on the grounds that there were irregularities. I mean, it's really hard to do because you're basically you may say. Oh, I was disenfranchised because they didn't take my ballot. Are you gonna are you gonna disenfranchise six million people? Which is what this this Republican Federalist Society judge said over the weekend, basically saying this is crazy. These people say that there something happened with their these these plaintiffs said that something happened with their their absentee ballots that weren't taken, and and we're supposed to invalidate the ballots of six six or seven million Pennsylvanians, including people who yeah, basically who, get you out didn't of even here. vote yeah. in these counties. They, the, the judge <laughs> said, you, didn't, you guys didn't even vote in the counties that you sued. How does that help you? And it's just completely insane. They absolutely have nothing. And yet the president of the United States is ranting on about fraud and how he was, and that they're going to still, he's still, you know, notwithstanding his, his, his the, the, GS, the GSA administrator, finally ascertaining the election without using the word ascertaining, um, he's still claiming fraud. And they're raising money off of this. They're sending out these, oh, yeah. as, uh, yeah. as, as, yeah. as as Jennifer points out, they're sending out these fundraising misses. I'm putting this in air quotes, right. the legal defense the fund. The legal defense fund that they're not going to, that there is, there is no legal defense. They there's, don't need the there's money. There's no legal defense. There's no, no, there's no need for a legal defense. It's not getting them anywhere. There's no fraud, yet they talk of fraud. I mean, literally, if you or I did this to raise money for, I don't know, like, you know, we were saying, oh, we were raising money for our homeless dogs. For charity or something. Right. right. Our yeah. homeless dogs. Yeah. And people are persecuting our homeless dogs. And there were no homeless yeah. dogs. We'd yes. go to jail. It would we be would called fraud. It would be called I, I was going to say the only fraud that has taken place in this election is the post-election fundraising exactly. from Donald it, Trump. It, should, yeah. it really should be mail or wire fraud. I think the, the problem is prosecutors hate to right. do it when it comes to you know if you if you actually political yeah if you if you if you took political speech and political fundraising and put that through right. the mail fraud wire fraud statute, a lot of people would go to jail. But these people are over the top. Well, there's it. Yeah, go ahead, John. But I'm gonna say, but you guys, you guys know well the the real danger here is not you know but not the legal, is, right. is and the legal thing. Yeah, you know, I I worked overseas in a lot of countries that that uh, 
you know, ends up being quite violent in Yugoslavia and Pakistan and other places. And what's happening here is you're, you're creating victimhood in a large part of the population. So there's right. millions of people who believe right. what president's saying that the, the election was stolen. It was rigged. There was fraud. And so they've, cr- they're going to create this myth that we are stabbed in the back, that we're victims. And if you're a victim, you think you can get away with anything, you know, because you're, be- you're being mistreated. And so there's, it's very dangerous when there's a large group of people out there who believe that. For example, I was mm-hmm. in Yugoslavia and the Serbs were the largest plurality. They were the largest ethnic group. But Milosevic had, con- had convinced them that they were the real victims. And so when minority groups see the majority claiming victimhood and therefore they can do whatever they want, yeah. that creates you know, a fuse for a really dangerous situation. So there's millions of Americans who believe this stuff and it's going to cause this problem for years to come. That's so right. That's such, I mean, you know, we, we talk about the legal, you know, it, it, it really is the fabric of the country is being torn. And, you know, yeah. you talk about the stab in the back, you remember the whole stab in the back legend that persisted in Germany at the end of World War One, where it was believed, you know, that some commu- some group of communists or socialists caused um, the general, high, the German high command to surrender to the allies when in fact they were about to be overrun all the way to Berlin. And, you know, that look what that got us. That look, what, look what that happened to Europe. I mean, it's crazy and it's scary. John, can you expand a little bit more on that? What, what potent, since we know that there's absolutely nothing to the legal claims and they know that there's nothing to the legal claims and they're not doing it because they believe they have a legal case, they're doing it for, for a much more nefarious purpose. Can you talk about what potential dangers specifically can arise from that on both the domestic and the international fronts? It weakens the country, and it it goes to show, you know, the election really highlighted for us the the massive gap between the sort of the ethics of our politicians and the strength of our institutions and professionals. And so, you know, you had people in these election bureaus and state places, and plus in the FBI and, and Homeland Security and these places that were very professional and did their job, even against pressure from the White House, whereas our politicians and these enablers... Um, who I, I, I assume some of these Republicans want these crazy voters, these QAnon voters and these people who think that this whole thing is rigged in the future. So they're not, they're not stepping up and protecting the country at a dangerous time because they think they're going to benefit in the future. So, so you know, the strength of our country abroad is, is directly connected to our strength at home and how unified we are and, you know, obviously our economy and all those other type of things. And so all of this stuff, is weakening us abroad. All you know, everything we do is watched very, very closely abroad. I lived overseas for most of my career, and and, and you know, every little thing we do, they pay attention to it. And so, right now, there's a lot of people around the around the world just wondering what the heck is happening here. The Americans should know from watching other countries just how dangerous this is, this game they're playing. But we continue to double down and and, and increase the danger. And and we should say, Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's not the bumbling fool that he looks like most of the time. He knows what he's doing. He's doing it for his own pur- personal purposes. He's doing it to um, for his own financial, personal financial purposes. Um, but he knows what he's doing. He knows the damage that he's causing. Um, and I think that at some point in history, when people look back, there are going to be human beings alive in our country who look back and are embarrassed and ashamed to realize the role that they played 
when they finally figure this out, when it finally becomes as clear to them as it is to all of us. Um, and I think we can't underestimate the point John you know, alluded to earlier. Like We've all on this podcast and in the Lincoln Project talked about the, um, the dangerous position, the precarious position that Donald Trump puts democracy in. The way in, in his behavior at post-election, his assault on free and fair elections, that it, it puts democracy in our country in a precarious position, and that has that ripple effect around the world and how yeah. dangerous that is. Um, but John talked about something that I had just not completely connected the dots on or thought about when he talked about the dangerous the the danger of violence the dangers of what can erupt in our own streets when there is a majority stakeholder a majority demographic who believes that they have been wrong that yeah. they have had something stolen from them um, and so anybody in the Republican Party who continues you know Mitch McConnell Ron Romney McDaniel Kevin McCarthy right all the Republicans in the Senate all of those people who continue to feed that myth that falsehood are contributing to uh, these circumstances that has real potential to become very dangerous for innocent people in our country and I don't think that we should gloss over that go ahead George Oh, and it and it's getting worse. Okay, he's getting worse. I'm I'm gonna. I just saw this on Twitter. This is happening in real time as we're recording this podcast. Here's what Trump is saying by speakerphone at this fake hearing that's being held in Pennsylvania with Giuliani. He calls the election a quote fraud. Close quote. Says quote We won easily. We won it by a lot. And then he says the Democrats cheated. Quote They're horrible people. Close quote. Just like they got caught spying on my campaign. We have to turn the election over, he says. If you are a Republican poll watcher, you are treated like a dog. We have to turn the election over, he says, because there's no doubt we have all the evidence. We have all the affidavits. We have everything. All we need is to have some judge listen to it properly without having a political opinion or having some other other kind, another kind of a problem. Oh my God. I mean, listen to that. It, it's that's, so dangerous. Yeah, that's what he's telling the public that, 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 that there was massive fraud, that he won the election by a, basically a landslide, and that the, he's, he's telling people not to respect the courts oh because the courts God. are in cahoots with the evil, evil Democrats who treat Republicans like dogs. I mean, it's insane. And, and he has, I mean, not that this wasn't developing over the years anyways, but I've never seen a president more directly and more intentionally try to tell the American people that your neighbors are your enemy. So the Democrats, see what George just said about the Democrats. So, you know, one of my best friends is a Democrat. Some of my family members are Democrats. People that I, you know, work with in community efforts are Democrats. Are, are they my enemies? Are they the enemy of the people? Is that how he wants us to think about yes. each other now? It is. Uh, you know, that's how he got caught up in the whole Russia thing. Is that's right. In right. the beginning when he was running for president. He saw Hillary Clinton and Democrats as the real enemy. And if you believe that's your real enemy, you're willing to work with anybody to destroy your enemy. And so he's got himself deeper and deeper because his view that other Americans are the enemy, that, that blue states are the enemy of the red states, that blue cities are the enemy. That, and, and so he's willing to do anything. He's got this feral instinct, stuff George has written about quite a bit, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that will have him lash out at anybody. He needs to destroy and seek vengeance against his enemies at all times. And those are Americans. That's the goddamn problem here. And if the red states are the enemies of the blue states and the blue states are the enemies of the red states, 
what kind of altercation do we call that? That's, that's what a civil war is, right? So to, you know, how far is this president willing to go? This is the low water mark. And this president has already convinced all of his supporters that the press is the enemy. So how do, so now we live in an environment where my neighbor is supposed to be my enemy, the press is my enemy, that the only access now to information that I trust is going to come from Donald Trump's mouth. That's what he has created for a lot of that 70 million Americans who voted for him. On Monday, Emily Murphy, the administrator of the General Services Administration, officially triggered the presidential transition. This came more than two weeks after it became clear that Joe Biden had won enough electoral votes to become the next president of the United States. On Tuesday morning, Joe Biden officially announced several members of his top national security and foreign policy teams. Biden has nominated Alejandro Mayorkas to become the first Latino and immigrant to head the Department of Homeland Security, Jake Sullivan as his national security advisor, Avril Haines as the director of national intelligence, Tony Blinken as the secretary of state, Linda Thomas-Greenfield as ambassador to the United Nations, and former secretary of state John Kerry as special presidential envoy for climate. John, can you help us understand the difference in qualifications between the current Trump administration's national security team and the officials Biden has nominated? And then also, what are the implications of those differences in qualifications for the country? Yeah, we started by talking about Michael Flynn, and, and we talked about a guy who was fired from, from the Defense Intelligence Agency and, and was fired within weeks of taking the job. And frankly, he was probably one of the most professional people that they had hired. And since then, they've gotten bigger and bigger flunkies and B-team and C-team players. So essentially what we're seeing here is some return to normality. These people are centrists. They're not of the left or right. They're professionals. Most of them served as deputies of large organizations. They've managed workforces on mission-driven, whether it's intelligence, national security, foreign policy issues, um, health issues over time. And so I think, you know, we're, this signifies the end of sort of the mafia presidency, you know, all about loyalty and sucking up to the whims of the boss. These people are about the, the mission and protecting the United States and the Constitution. So, yeah, they may not be, you know, exciting and on your front page every day, like, you know, the, the fights that happen in this administration, but they're going to take care of their workforces. They're going to focus on the issues. They're going to provide the president with information, even if it's information that he doesn't necessarily want to hear. Um, and these are the things that we need to move towards, you know, it's a very, very complex and complicated world. And, and the United States can't just do what it wants on a whim, like perhaps it could do in, in decades past. And so, you know, these are pros and they're going to get things wrong, And but hopefully they'll have learned from the time in government before. And and uh, our allies will be really, really pleased to see that they have professionals and serious people to work with rather than people whose whole job is to suck up to Donald Trump. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. Let's let's talk for a second about the nomination announcement itself, because it was such a stark contrast to what we've seen over the last four years, because none of these nominees have spent considerable time praising Joe Biden or talking about how big his victory was. Can you like, what was your reaction to that, to this return to normalcy? Um, uh, I mean, is this, a, is this a win for the make politics boring again crowd? Um, 
I mean, George, what do you think? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, I, I didn't watch all of it, but, but yeah, there was none of this thank you to the, the president and how wonderful the president is. And one I mean, there was talking about American values. I mean, I saw Tony Blinken, who I actually had the privilege of, he was my, co- he was a college classmate oh, wow. of mine. We were actually in the same house in college. Uh, we didn't know each other that well. I actually didn't know each other at all. And he gave this, you know, talk about the meaning of America mm. um, and talked about how his stepfather was one of several hundred kids in a school, I think, in Poland. And he was the only one who survived the Holocaust. Wow. And he, oh. you know, he was the, the stepfather, I think, was in Dachau and in Auschwitz. And in, during the last days of the war, they, the, the Germans were marching prisoners around basically because, because, of, because of the approaching Allied forces from both sides. And he and some other people made a break for it um, when, when I think there was some strafing by an, America, by, by, by an Allied airplane. And he hid in the woods, this, the stepfather of, of Tony Blinken. And finally, he saw a tank. He heard a rumbling of a tank come up. And he saw that the tank didn't have the Iron Cross on it. It had a five-pointed white star. And, I mean, to hear him tell the story, he, he, the guy runs up to the tank and throws himself on his knees and a black oh serviceman comes out. And the only words that his stepfather knew were, God bless oh America. God. That, that's what Tony Blank wow. Lincoln talked about. Didn't talk about, you know, didn't didn't give some narcissistic this, this speech to appeal to the uh, narcissistic leader. He talked about the meaning of America, um, not only to America, but to the world. That That's the change that people have been looking for, Ron, right there. I mean, it's, um, wow. you know, George has the three of us all sitting here and I know. by our microphones crying I now. I, and I did not tell that as well as Tony <laughs> sure, did. Watch you, this but, now. But, but George, you, you told it in a way that brought me to tears. The fact that it moved you the way that it did. Because that's the me. thing that we've been missing for this last four years. We've exactly. been missing the sense that we're in this because of an idea that we're in this together. Our hearts for our country, our feelings for the flag, for our leaders, for for the for the 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 principles upon which we were founded. I mean, we've talked about this before, that it's our personal values and our personal principles that inspire us in the political world. And when that is lost. And perhaps it's been lost over time as opposed to magically on election day in 2016. But when that is fully lost, you get Donald Trump and you get a Trump America. So uh, I think we shared George's emotion over, over the power of the, the, how powerful the idea is that it's not really lost, that we can have it back, that it exists for Republicans to be able to look at Joe Biden, a Democratic pre- president elect, and, and to be able to see in that moment that George just talked about the not, the person that Joe Biden chose as his nominee to be able to see in that person's story something that moves our hearts for our country. That's where the hope is. That's what makes us say we can work together. We can make it right again. It's going to take time. It's going to be, be difficult. But you know, thank you to the majority of American voters who did elect Joe Biden and gave our country that chance. We'll put a link to that speech in the show notes for anyone who wants to watch it. The people who are watching that are, yeah. are Americans and all of us but but so is the rest of the world. And so, you know, in this day and age, 
the challenges we face are so big that we need American leadership. And leadership also means that you're, you're le- you have followers, you have people who are working with you, and, and it's our allies. And so if we're going to deal with climate change, if we're going to deal with health crisis, if we're going to deal with China, you know, a growing China, we're going to deal with Iran or Russia, we need allies and we need other partners to work with us. And what these nominees show is they're going to take that seriously and they're going to work hand in glove with partners in places where they're not directly allies and with allies where we have really close allies. And so I think the notion this America first, America alone thing is it's just not true. You can't operate in this world without having people having your back. Yeah. And for for thinking conservatives, this should be an incredible relief. These are mainstream, apart from just being incredibly competent and experienced, these are mainstream people with mainstream views. Frankly, the, the, the foreign, one of the things that's happened since I think the era of the neocons is that the democratic, the true democratic and Republican foreign policy establishments, the thinking parts, let's leave apart the Trumpists, are closer together than they ever have been before. And it should be easier to forge a foreign policy. This is at least this is my perception as a non foreign policy expert. It should be easy to forge a sensible American mainstream foreign policy that ever before because the issues that used to divide us in the past, like, you know, how intervention is to be, we don't, we don't really face anymore because there's just, we just understand the limits of, of, uh, in the 20th, 21st century of how, you know, how, that we can't intervene in ways that we would have been able to 40 or 50 years ago. And we've had, a, you know, we all have a shared experience about that. It's just the question of projecting American values. And, uh, and as, as John so well put it, just, you know, working with allies who share our values. And frankly, we, you know, as Democrats and Republicans, you know, there should not be a lot of dispute on this stuff. We believe in freedom. We believe in, in democracy, at least, you know, the non-Rudy Giuliani wing of the Republican Party or whatever's left of it. So this, this is, you know, this is really, really heartening. This is going to be a foreign policy team, I would think, that thinking Republicans and conservatives should not have a problem with. And I think some of the reaction we saw among some of the better members of the United States Senate um, on the Republican side, have, yeah, the have biggest shown. pushback actually has been from from the left. It's been from Ron Ron Wyden. And That's right. People like that 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 believe that these guys are too centrist. They're too you know they work with Republicans, and so and now and then I was is. just going to say there's a unique opportunity here, not just in foreign policy, but across the the policy spectrum. Um, you know, we're so focused on on the fire that is raging in the Republican Party be, because. You know the the president of the United States is is guys lit, lit the fire, yeah, right. The Democrats and the Democratic Party have their own challenges. Uh, you know, they have an extremist wing that doesn't begin to compare in this moment. I will admit that openly to what's happening on the extreme right. But there is a unique opportunity here with Joe Biden, a man who is a moderate. It's hard to call him otherwise, you know, even if his positions have developed on a lot of issues, just like we all do as we age and, and go through life. But he has always developed working relationships across the aisle. That's what his, his you know, his reputation, that's what his history has been. He, um, you know, he, he there is 
an, an oper- a unique opportunity here for those members of the Republican Party um, who have spent the last four years looking at Trump saying, this is not my guy, this is not my party, you know, and for Democrats who have a real heart for trying to heal the nation and, and bring us to, you know, move us forward from this moment, for those people to come together and develop policy that doesn't necessarily satisfy either extreme you know, farthest right or farthest left. And maybe that's exactly where we need to be right now. Before we go, I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the coronavirus. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that for the first time since the outbreak began, the United States has added more than 1 million new coronavirus cases in each of the past two weeks. There has been a 43% increase in cases over the last 14 days and a 48% increase in hospitalizations and a 61% increase in deaths over that same period. Applications for unemployment benefits rose for the second week in a row last week. We still haven't seen movement by the Trump administration to attempt to mitigate the spread of the virus. We know that there are a couple different vaccines coming, but there's most likely not going to be any movement by the federal government for the next 54 days. So I just want to pose this question to to all of you. How should the American people be thinking about the lack of a response to COVID? And how do you think this period of time is going to be remembered in American history? John, do you want to take that first? We always run back to Donald Trump here, but this really hits me in the sense that his way of trying to keep himself in power and to keep his enemies at bay is to, is to was to tell his people to distrust government, distrust professionals, distrust the elite, distrust the government, the intelligence services are Nazis, the FBI or the deep state, all these type of things. What is required going forward to solve this problem, I'm not an expert on health issues, but we're going to need professionals. We're going to need to be able to find ways to get you know hundreds of millions of doses to people that and, and kept you know frozen and we're going to have to work across parties and across states and all these type of things you need professionals you need just simple government workers working with across federal and state lines if you again if you have large groups of people in the country who think that the government is the enemy and mm-hmm. that you know, these, these are part of the deep states that's working against, you know, their politicians. It's going to make it harder and harder to solve these kind of problems, these kind of problems that are, you know, our life and death problems for our citizens. Jennifer? Well, first of all, John's completely right um, with everything that he just said. For me, first, we know that there's no question that loss of life is going to continue. It's going to continue during this transition period as, you know, Trump is, goes through this painful process of exiting office with a disregard for the value of that life from our government leaders that I think is at the heart of what is the greatest damage that has come from the pandemic and what people have done. Um, You know, my dad is 84 years old and he has Parkinson's disease. We do everything in our power to make his life more meaningful, fuller, when my mother was ill and she had dementia her last couple of years, all of our focus was on giving her you know, joy, bringing joy to her life, making her life meaningful so that she could see from us mm-hmm. and, and my dad that we value their lives at this age and in their illness every bit as much as we value our own. 
or our children's or, you know, young people. And I think that the greatest damage that we have suffered as a nation, frankly, is that Donald Trump has convinced the American people, or some, he has convinced some of the American people, that life is not valuable, that life does not carry an inherent value. We have Americans who are debating whether or not wearing a mask is too great an inconvenience to try to preserve other people's lives. People, we have Americans who are suggesting that because this only impacts significantly elderly people, is it really worth all the restrictions and the uh, sacrifices that we have had to make? Um, I think that that is going to be the greatest damage that we carry forward is after we have a vaccine, after everybody feels safe again, when the restaurants are open and we gather in crowds to watch fireworks on, you know, next 4th of July and people feel like they don't have to wear a mask in the grocery store again, are they going to be standing there saying, phew, I don't have to wear a mask. Okay, 450,000 dead people, but thank God I don't have to wear a mask. Um, you know, I, I find that to be incredibly difficult to wrap my head around and to accept. Um, and again, I think that when we look back, when history looks back on this time, they will talk about Donald Trump. They will talk about how we could have, you know, it could have been better, all of these things. But I think that the overarching lesson or, or damage from this is going to be how do we return? How do we overcome this horrible disregard for human life? I, I just couldn't agree more. And, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it's easy to blame it all on Donald Trump, a guy who, remember the time he was asked by a reporter in the briefing room, what do you have to say to people who are scared? Which would have been an easy question for any competent politician who was even a politician who was just putting on an act. And he said, I think you're a terrible reporter. As though the, 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 you know, he was saying right there that people's feelings about their loved ones didn't matter. People's feelings about their, their fear for their own lives didn't matter. And then, he, you know, he, his entire conduct with respect to the coronavirus after calling it a hoax and, and then saying that, oh, very few people get it, you know, uh, just only the old people. And he really did say that at one point. And then he, even when you're know, promising the vaccine, right? He's promised the vaccine, the vaccine will come by election day, which of course is a lie. He would lie just to say, but he was doing that because he wanted to take credit for it and he wanted to get the benefit for it, not because a vaccine would benefit the American people. And then he said, when, when, when announcements about the vaccine came after the election, he accused, and he had done this before the election. He was accusing he was accusing people of of holding back on on good news about the vaccines to hurt him politically, and and he was accusing doctors of inflating uh, COVID deaths to hurt him. I mean, all he cared about was himself, and that's the message he sent to the American people. It only matters how this affects me, and a lot of people have taken that to heart in the way, exactly the way that Jennifer has described, 
and said, you know, this is only, I, I only care about this to the extent it affects me. And then they deny that it could affect them because maybe they're, they don't have a pre-existing condition or they think they're immune because they're 26. Um, and, and just not give a damn about the people who could be more affected than they. And it's just, it's like a disease. The narcissism, the, the narcissism is just, it, it was worse in some ways than the virus. Earlier this year, I don't know if it was a lieutenant governor of Texas, it was one of the officials, elected Republicans in Texas, made a comment about he thinks there's a lot of grandparents out there who would be happy to shorten their lives if it meant a more economically secure time for their uh, secure outcome for their grandchildren. In San Antonio, Texas, a couple of weeks ago in October, a four-year-old boy lost his 33-year-old mother to the coronavirus after back in May, losing his father to the coronavirus. So as you go out in the spring and buy your new car and you're economically better off than you were a couple of months ago, write a little note to the four-year-old boy in Texas who lost both of his parents to this disease and explain to me how any of this makes any sense within the realm of basic humanity. It doesn't. And that's what is so hurtful to me, at least, and I think to a lot of people out there, to what George just said. It's Trump's narcissism has become contagious. He is convincing too many people in this country that their personal comfort and convenience is more important and more valuable than human life. And and he encouraged that, remember? Liberate Wisconsin. Liberate Liberate Michigan. Michigan. So liberate from what? Exactly. I mean, all we're asking you to do is... Put a freaking mask on. Put a mask on. That's all we're asking you to do. Right. I mean, it's crazy. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest news of the week, I want to turn to the week ahead. So what stories are you watching as we head into next week, Jennifer? I'm very, very concerned about those COVID numbers. I I am concerned that there is this possibility that we could lose as many more lives as we've already lost before this thing gets figured out. But probably the story to watch or the the thing to keep your eye on going forward is if, if Flynn is just the opening act on presidential pardons and uh, Trump's uh, behavior now that the uh, majority of the world has, you know, accepted the outcome of this election, then that's what I'm keeping my eye on. What's next? Who's next? Yeah. George, what are you watching? Oh, exactly the same thing. We do not know what's cooking in his mind other than he's going to try to wreak as much destruction and revenge as he can possibly achieve in the next 50 odd days. He'll never accept that he lost and he will always convince himself and try to convince others that he was screwed out of another term in the White House. And he's going to do what he can to engage in sabotage of the next administration and seeking revenge against those who he believes wronged him. And this is the op- one of the opening salvos today, the bar- pardoning of Flynn. He views that as a direct attack on a, you know, revenge on the people he thinks wronged him. And the problem is we actually need a functioning government right now with the coronavirus um, ra- ravaging America and, 
and, and accelerating. And we're not going to have one because his focus is going to be stuff like this, the pardoning of Flynn, pardoning of whoever, firing of whomever, and maybe even the pardoning of himself. John, what are you watching? First, Ron, I want to lodge a protest. I wasn't warned that this would be so emotionally challenging, this podcast. <laughs> Normally it's not. <laughs> yeah, I'm just joking. David Ignatius wrote an op-ed today in the Washington Post, which is probably worth, worth reading. And it says, you know, we've sort of quickly decided that now that most sensible people realize Biden is one and the Biden group is moving forward, you know, there's still stuff that Trump has up his sleeve and Trump is still himself refusing to agree here. And some of them are, you know, uh, potential violence by by stoking his followers to create violence and maybe have some sort of state of emergency that he can use to his benefit. You know, military strikes. We saw last week reporting that he was talking about striking Iran. He's obviously changed the leadership in the in the in DOD. So th- there's a lot of potential dangers in the next couple of months that he could take use to his advantage, and that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. And thanks to Jennifer, John, and George for making the time to have this conversation. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.